We are the lone and hopeless We are the outcast orphans We are the ones no one wants But our Father is coming for us You adopted us Welcome to Faith on Hills online Sunday morning service. Now, we gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person. In person, we are at our building on Hill Road. Uh, We gather together for prayer, for worship, for Bible teaching, all of that stuff. Uh, Online, you are either listening to us on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts, the audio-only version. You're watching the live stream on our website or you are checking out the video on our Facebook page. If you're on our Facebook page, we'd love a like and a share. That'd be awesome. If you haven't subscribed to our podcasts, uh, we'd love that. Uh, That is where all of our podcasts are, including the 20-minute Bible study, the Talk About Anything podcast, and Starting Points. We are sort of taking a pause and sort of not. We are going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 this morning. But while we are taking a time a week away from Revelation, we will be talking about things directly connected with the book of the Revelation. So if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Well, I grew up in a church that was part of a group of churches that made an incredibly big deal about the end times, about the book of Revelation, and about the rapture of the church. A huge deal. I cannot emphasize that enough. That was like one of the like, top three things that you could talk about in the church that I grew up in and in the type of church, the group of churches that I grew up in. And it got to the point, by the time that I came along as a pastor and as a Bible teacher, that Older people in those churches had heard so many people teach the book of Revelation that if you didn't hit the high points that it seemed like every preacher hit, they would call you out on it. Hey, you didn't talk about this. So-and-so always talks about this. I've listened to these three, four, five, or six people teach the book of the Revelation, and they all talked about this. One of those things was this. Revelation chapter 4. Verse 1 says, after I looked, there, after this, excuse me, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 says, after this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and a voice that I heard at first speaking to me like a trumpet, saying, come up here, I will show you what must take place after this. Chapter 4, verse 1 begins with the words after this and ends with the word after this. And almost to a person, everyone I ever heard preach or teach these verses said, after what? And then they would say, after the things of the church. And they would say, this is a clear teaching that the rapture of the church will happen and it will happen before the seven-year tribulation. And then I got to Bible college and I said, does it though? My, my teacher in uh, Revelations in Bible college did not like my questions. 
because things were assumed and things were just like, oh yeah, we, we've got this. And then I'd, people in the next generation would go, does it say that? Now, personally, I tend to lean towards the idea that it does say those things. After these things, after the age of the church is done, these future things will happen. But I'm not going to hang my hat there. I don't think it's as clear as my professor in Bible college thought, as the pastor who I love, who I grew up with, taught, as the many good, godly men and women who I heard teach these verses said it was. And yet, I believe firmly, I believe firmly in the rapture of the church. I believe firmly that Jesus, before the seven years of trial and judgment that God will put on this earth, I believe that Jesus will come and call his church out of this world because we are not meant for the wrath of God. But I don't believe it because of Revelation 4. I believe it because of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In Thessalonians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, and in verse 13, he says, Brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of humanity who have no hope. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed. I want you to know about these things. Can I say there is a segment of the church that has been very okay. In fact, it's the majority of the church throughout history that has been very okay with being uninformed about things beyond this present moment. There has been a large group of the Christians and believers and church-going people who have been very okay with not knowing what God has to say about the future. Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you will not grieve like the rest of humanity who have no hope. We've had people in our church experience great loss, some very recently. The difference between us and the rest of the world is we know what lies on the other side. We serve the Savior who holds the keys of death because he has conquered sin and death. Paul says, hey, I don't want you to grieve. We know the answer. Now, what had happened is that these are some of the original Christians. These are people who would have lived in the same time as Jesus or would have been people who were born within 10 or 15 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. The people that Paul is writing to are contemporaries of Peter and James and John, of Matthew and Thomas. They are contemporaries of Barnabas and Luke, of Mary and Martha, of Phoebe, of Ananias and Sapphira, of Aquila and Priscilla. They are contemporaries of these names that we read in the scripture. I don't know why I said Ananias and Sapphira. They're a bad example, but they would have been contemporaries of them too. Either way, 
These are people who are brand new Christians, and they aren't just new Christians. They are the first Christians. And Paul says to them, hey, I get it. You guys have been told that Jesus rose from the dead, and 40 days later, after being seen by over 500 eyewitnesses, which we will celebrate just in a few weeks, 40 days after Easter Sunday, Jesus went on top of a hill with some of his closest friends and followers. And there he gave them some final instructions. You can find those in Acts chapter 1. And he literally ascended out of their sight. And they were just standing there. And two angels appeared and said, what are you doing there? He's gone to heaven. He's victorious, seated, just as he talked about last week in Revelation chapter 3 as we studied that. Jesus sat victorious with his father on the throne in heaven. And this angel said, hey, what are you doing? Get back to Jerusalem. That's where Jesus told you to wait for the Holy Spirit. And as these first believers have heard the good news that God became a man, that he came and conquered sin and death, he rose from the dead and ascended victorious into heaven. And they believed the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. But then some time passed. And people died because people die. And they wrote to Paul and they said, we've had people die. Some from old age, maybe a sickness came through town. This was not a time anywhere close to modern medicine. What happens to them when Jesus comes back? What happens to them when Jesus returns? And Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed. Verse 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that those who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. What does he mean by that? It's an awkward way of saying it. Why can't you say it a little clearly? Well, I'm sure he was in the original Greek. But what he's saying is this. People who are still alive, when Jesus comes back, won't see him first. He goes on in verse 15. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. Now remember, what did it in Revelation 4, when John said, after these things, and I heard Jesus speaking with the voice of a trumpet. So that's another way in which people have tried to link the rapture with Revelation 4. But what happens? This is the more important thing. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So what Paul is saying is, there will come a day when Jesus calls the dead in Christ to himself, and they will rise first and be with him. Verse 17, after that, we who are still alive. So Paul was assuming that he would be alive in that moment. He didn't make it. Spoiler alert. But his assumption was that he would still be alive. The early church, the original Christians, believed that Jesus' coming was imminent. It could happen at any moment. It could happen at any time. And they firmly believed that they could be alive to see it. 
After that, we who are still alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Remember I said that there are a large group of people throughout church history that have been very okay with not knowing about these things? And they miss an encouraging word, a word of strengthening, a word of comfort, because they don't want to know. When it says, after these things, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. The word used for caught up was translated into Latin, which became the dominant language of the Western Mediterranean and of the Western church. And when it was translated into Latin, it was translated into the word raptu, later translated into the word raptus. And then when Latin broke off into the Romantic languages, Italian, Romanian, French, Spanish, so on, in French, it became the word rapture. People say the rapture is not in the Bible. First of all, that doesn't matter. Trinity is not in the Bible, and yet I will stand firm in the proclamation that there is one God who has revealed himself in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The word rapture, no, it does not appear in our English Bible because we speak English and not Latin nor French. But the rapture is in the Bible. It is right here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Those who are still alive will be caught up, raptured, and they will meet the Lord and the dead in Christ who have risen first. And we are to comfort each other with these words. Why is that comforting? It's comforting because for those of us who have lost loved ones who believed, we know that they will experience the fullness of God. They won't just go straight to heaven. They will come and return, and they will be there when Jesus establishes his rule and his reign in perfection on this earth. It's comforting because we know that we're not going to miss Jesus' coming. Oh, did Jesus show up and he's hiding somewhere and we don't know? Absolutely not. We will not miss it. It's comforting because in times of trial, in times of suffering, in times of persecution, in times of opposition, in times of uncertainty, we can hold with faith that Jesus will return, Jesus will set things right, and he will not leave us. He will gather his people to himself. Chapter 5, verse 1, he continues, Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and the dates, we don't need to write you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night nor the darkness. So then, let us not be like the others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. 
Now, maybe your experience was that you knew people or you were a person who got drunk first thing in the morning. He's speaking in generalities. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. There is a wing of the church right now that wants to go to war. They want to go to war with the culture. They want to go to war in politics. They want to go to war against other parts of the church. And, and these wings of the church, it's not just one side. There's people who feel that way on the right. There's people who feel that way on the left. There's people who feel that way in older, more traditional churches. There's people who feel that way in more modern, younger churches. And they want to go to war against different things and for different reasons. But what Paul is saying is, don't get bothered in that stuff. You want to go to war? Put on faith. Put on love. Get ready. The hope of salvation. Be kingdom-minded. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, and what he's saying is whether we're alive or dead, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as you, in fact, are already doing. He is saying, hey, we've already told you that Jesus is coming back. We've already told you that Jesus will set up his rule and his reign. And we have told you that there is a coming judgment, a coming time of tribulation and wrath. But in chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says, We were not appointed to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through Jesus Christ. I believe in the rapture of the church. I believe that the church, those who are alive in that day, will be caught up and meet the Lord in the air. I believe it will happen before the seven-year tribulation period that we will be studying about in the book of Revelation. I believe that from chapter 6 on to about chapter 18, give or take, generally speaking, Christians, the church, will not be involved. And we'll get to that as we go along further. But what surprises people is they think Revelation will answer my question about that. I'm going to study the book of the Revelation, and it will answer my questions about the rapture and when it happens and whether it even happens at all. But that's not what Revelation is about. Revelation is about speaking to Jesus' church presently, that's the first five chapters. Revelation is about letting us, warning us, really, about the coming judgment on a sinful, wicked world, a world of war, a world of genocide, a world of kidnapping children like they're doing in the Ukraine and they're taking them to Russia, a world of human trafficking as happens in our own community, a world of abuse, a world of corruption. It's warning people, this is the judgment that is coming. But it also brings a message of hope as the, the last several chapters of the book of the Revelation describe the kingdom that Jesus will establish in peace and perfection. So encourage one another with these words. I believe in the rapture of the church because it's in the Bible. Somebody says, where is the rapture in the Bible? Can you show me? I just did. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and chapter 5. 
when it says caught up, that's where we get our word rapture from. If you want to call it the catching up instead of the rapture, I don't care. It's fine with me. It's in the Bible. I believe in it because it's in the Bible. I believe it happens before God's judgment on this earth. I affirm that because it makes the most sense to me. Chapter 5, verse 9 says that we are not appointed to suffer the wrath of God. In the book of Genesis, Abraham is speaking to God and he's trying to plead for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, God doesn't judge the righteous with the wicked and God does not disagree with him. I believe that, I believe that the rapture is in the Bible. I affirm the pre-tribulation rapture of the church because it makes the most sense to me. I'm not interested in arguing with somebody about it. We've talked about this before. There are people that just want to argue about things. And I'm just kind of like, all right, you have a different opinion than I do. You, you can't say that the rapture's not in the Bible. If you say that, then I'll just say, like, you're wrong. It's there. But I can still be your friend. I can still be respectful. I can still have a good, productive conversation. I will say, you know what? There's a lot of different points of view. There are those who say, uh, you know, hey, the rapture happens halfway through the tribulation, and that's when the wrath of God really turns on, and so God removes his church, and no one's saved after this point. I don't agree with that view, but that's a view that's totally fine and acceptable. Uh, there are those who say the rapture of the church will happen at the end of the tribulation. And we are caught up, we meet the Lord in the air, and then we return with him as he establishes his rule and his reign. I don't agree with that view, but there are very godly women and men who believe that view, and I'm not interested in not like losing sleep over it. I'd rather just like eat a meal or drink a coffee with them, you know? There are those who say it's all allegorical. And to them I would say, what, if it, we, what is it we have said about the book of the Revelation, we're going to approach it as we would any other part of the Bible. Where it is literal, I will take it literal. Where it's obviously figurative or obviously allegorical, then I will take it in that manner. But I believe that generally speaking, it's going to describe literal things. I believe in a literal judgment. That's the time of tribulation. We talked about it a year or so ago when we studied the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is told that there is a set of seven-year periods that are determined for his people and the holy city, Jerusalem. And at the second to last, the 69th seven-year period, Messiah, the prince, would come and be cut off. And then it's as if God had a stopwatch and he hit pause. And we have been living in an age of grace, a pause between that 69th and that 70th seven-year period. A pause in that time where God has been calling the church out of this world. I believe in Jesus' earthly return and his earthly reign. That's what's called the millennial kingdom. A thousand years of peace in Jesus reigning and ruling here on this earth. Now, what you do here, and this is fair, it's, it's fair to acknowledge the, the concept of any kind of rapture, whatever it happens, the beginning, at the middle, at the end, whatever, has been a minority view throughout the history of the church. And the pre-tribulation rapture is a very minority view throughout the history of the church. 
And you will hear people say things like, you know, nobody even taught such a thing as the rapture before 1830. And then these guys came along, Schofield and Darby, and they started to popularize this idea. But it, it is just something that was invented a couple hundred years ago. And before that, nobody even heard of such a thing. We are all affected. We are affected by history. We are affected by tradition. And we are affected by sin. What do I mean by that? We are not the first people to proclaim that Jesus will return and remove his church from the judgment. Anyone who says that there was never any teaching on the rapture before 1830, I think in general is just ignorant. Most people are just ignorant. A few are lying, but most are just ignorant. Because if you grew up in a church where you were taught that, or you went to a Bible college or a seminary, and you heard professors and scholars tell you that, if you search the internet, as I've done the last couple weeks as I prepared for this message, and you search the internet, and you will find very smart people, some who love Jesus a lot, who will tell you that the rapture was never talked about before 1830. Here's the thing. This is an excerpt from a sermon written in the 4th century by a brother in Christ named Ephraim, Ephraim the Syrian. And in the sermon, a gospel message, he said this, Why, therefore, do we reject every care of earthly actions? Let's prepare ourselves for the meeting of the Lord Jesus so that he may draw us from the confusion which overwhelms all the world. For all the saints and elect of God are gathered prior to the tribulation that is to come and are taken to the Lord, lest they see the confusion that is to overwhelm the world because of sin. Why is it that I'm saying most people who say the rapture was invented 200 years ago are ignorant? Why is it that they've never heard this sermon from Ephraim the Syrian? Might I suggest, at least in part, it's because his name is Ephraim the Syrian. It's because his name is not, you know, Philip of Rome or, you know, so, Saint So-and-so of France or Germany. I'm just going to throw that out there as a suggestion. We are all affected by history, by tradition, and by sin. History. When Rome... Uh, became a Christian empire, so-called, supposedly. Constantine uh, was baptized as a Christian and, and became the first Roman Christian emperor, so-called. Incidentally, I've, I've just totally by happenstance, I've been uh, to where Constantine you know, proclaimed himself emperor and um, you know, he's an important figure in history. But before that, you can read the writings of church fathers, those who led the church from after the time of the apostles until Constantine and, and the Roman church, they believed that Jesus could come at any time. They believed in an imminency of his return. As we've read here, at least some of them believed that Jesus would remove his church prior to that time of tribulation. But then... Two guys came along who were very important, and I do not mean to badmouth them or rip them. Augustine and Origen. Augustine and Origen. And I appreciate both of them. I, I 
the, the, especially last year, I read St. Augustine's prayer book often. I have appreciated him throughout the years. And I've gained a new appreciation for Origen. When I was going to Bible college 20 years ago and I was taking uh, church history at an undergrad level, uh, the, the textbook was decidedly not a fan of Origen. And then when I took uh, church history at a graduate level a couple years ago, um, that textbook was a little more favorable towards Origen. And I, I got to interact with him in a new way. I appreciate both of them. I think both of them had incredibly important contributions to the church of Jesus Christ. Both of them believed that the book of the Revelation was allegorical. It was meant to just sort of paint a, a poetic picture of God's ultimate victory over sin. And, you know, someday Jesus will, will you know, judge the world, but it's not like literal. We shouldn't be taking it too seriously. And this sort of um, allegorical, what's called an amillennial view, which means you don't believe that there's going to be a literal rule and reign of Jesus on the earth, took hold in the church, especially the Roman church. And by Roman church, I mean Catholic church, but I'm trying not to knock anybody. I appreciate many, many good friendships I've had with sisters and brothers who are part of the Catholic church. But that was sort of the common practice. And so for about a thousand years, from about 500 AD to about, you know, 1500 AD, we had this view that was the primary view of the official church, that none of this was, was real, nobody took it seriously, it was all metaphorical, wasn't the emphasis. Then, what happened around 1500 AD? Reformers started to emerge. One of the big things was that people couldn't read the Bible in their own language. You could only read it in Latin. And most people didn't speak Latin. Even incredibly wealthy or informed people might not have spoken Latin. They might know how to read in their own language, which wasn't common in those days. But they were illiterate in Latin. Only scribes and scholars could. And then if you actually bothered to read the Bible in Latin, and you had too many questions, you'd get in trouble. And it wasn't until people illegally and bravely some who died for it began to publish the Bible in the language of common people, into German with Martin Luther, into English with John Wycliffe, into French and, and different languages as they began to translate them so the everyday average person like you and me can read the Bible for ourselves. And then they said, hey, there's things in here. Whoa, you never told us about. There was a... Uh, a French reformer named, I'm going to say this wrong, but it's Peter Jarreau, I think, is how you say it. I'm generally pretty good with my French uh, pronunciations, but I, I feel I'm pretty wrong on this one. But he was one of the first in, in, let's call it generally more modern times, to begin to teach about the rapture again. Now, he believed it would happen at the end of the tribulation, but he was talking about a rapture 200 years before 1830, before Darby and Schofield uh, released their uh, kind of treatise on the rapture. He was talking about it well before then. There are uh, evidences, because we, we know because people wrote about them as heretical, but there were groups in that intervening time who did read the Bible and said, hey, we think there's this thing in here about Jesus rapturing his church, because they would have read Latin, and then they were uh, outcast as heretics by the Catholic Church. But all of us are victims of history. 
the reformers came out of Catholicism and they said, you know what? We don't want to break with the church, but we believe that you are saved not through good works, not through church membership, not by paying certain sacrifices. You are saved by faith in Jesus alone. And so they broke and they had the Protestant Reformation. But you know what? They were still functionally Catholic in a lot of ways. I've sat in meetings where uh, in our group of churches, because we have a, what's called a Wesleyan background, and John Wesley was this guy uh, who founded Methodism, and we're not Methodist, but we have some historical DNA with them. And they'll say, well, John Wesley said this, and I'm like, yeah, but John Wesley was like, what, 200 100 years from the Reformation? He was still in, he grew up in a church in England that was still incredibly Catholic in so many beliefs and practices. But we're still caught up by by this history. And we're still caught up by tradition because Martin Luther didn't teach the rapture. John Wesley didn't teach the rapture. John Calvin didn't teach the rapture. And so people say, well, they didn't teach it. I'm not going to make a big deal about it. Charles Spurgeon, who was the most influential preacher in the English-speaking world in his day, did not care at all, could care less about things to do with the end times. That affects people because we're affected by history. We're affected by tradition. I'm a Lutheran. Luther didn't talk about it. I'm a Calvinist. Calvin didn't talk about it. I'm a Baptist and we like Spurgeon and Spurgeon didn't talk about it. And we're affected by sin. Sometimes we're affected by our sin. Sometimes we're affected by the sin of others. When we get further into the book of the Revelation, it talks quite a bit about God returning to deal with with his people, Israel. In Romans chapter 11, the apostle says, is God finished with Israel? And he says, certainly not. And there will come a time where God again starts to deal with his chosen people. And that makes people uncomfortable because quite honestly, the sin of racism has been a problem in the church, not just in our day, but in all ages. That John... Uh, sorry, uh, Martin Luther was a, was a man who loved Jesus, an important person, a person I am thankful for. He was also a racist, an anti-Semitic. And somebody will say, oh, well, that was just how they were back then. Sure, that sin had not been dealt with as it should have been. We don't, people don't like the rapture. And in our day, there's what's called replacement theology, which says the church has replaced Israel totally. Why? Because we don't want to deal with the fact that many of the theologians and scholars who promoted that idea don't like Jews. Why is it that we don't know about Ephraim the Syrian? Maybe because he's from the Eastern Church. Try going to a church history class. This was my big complaint in both of my church history classes, undergrad and grad school, and I made a big stink about it in grad school. I said, why are we just learning about white Western church history. Very little church history from Africa. No church history from anything east of the Danube. We minimize. In fact, there is historical records of, of in the early church even, uh, of people from, you know, the Coptic church and, and churches uh, further uh, south down the Nile and like Sudan who were kind of, you know, ignored a little bit. Uh, I'm reading a book right now called uh, How Africa Shaped the Christian Mind. And the author, uh, Dr. Thomas Oden, 
is arguing that there are people who are credited with founding monasticism or certain religious practices or certain uh, theological ideas. And he says, we know, we've got the documents that they learned it not of themselves in Europe, but they learned it from African theologians. But we forget they're African because they had Greek-sounding names because they were part of that, you know, Roman-influenced ecosystem. And then he says, or, or sometimes people just say, oh, it was them that did it because we don't want to acknowledge that maybe there were African origins to practices and theology that are still held by both Catholics and Protestants in the white Western church today. We are affected by history, tradition, and sin. History and tradition and sin do not like teachings about the end times. History, tradition, and sin do not like teachings about the rapture. I believe that the rapture, the concept of the rapture, not like the, the future event, but the concept itself, it, it calls us to, to honest deconstruction and reconstruction. And I believe in that. We talked about uh, deconstruction and reconstruction when we went through the Gospel of Matthew. And you can go back and see that one. Um, the, the, I believe in, in questioning everything in holiness. I believe in, in, in somebody saying, hey, wait, what's going on? I think in holiness, it was okay for me. I probably wasn't as holy or as humble as I should have been being a, a younger guy at Bible college. But it's okay to go to Bible college or go to your church or whatever and hear somebody teaching Revelation and saying, when it says after these things, and obviously that means the things of the church, and it's okay for somebody to say, does it obviously mean that? Does it though? It's okay in holiness, in humility, to question everything. Why do we do that? Why do we say that? Why do we act this way or don't act this way? Why do we teach that? Every generation needs its own reformation. The rapture it, it calls us to that sort of honest deconstruction and reconstruction, that sort of honest questioning of everything. Because when we read the scriptures, as I said, I believe in the rapture because it's in the Bible. Somebody who says that the rapture is foolishness or is insanity, bring them here. What do you say to this? We believe in the rapture uh, because we see it in the scripture. There's other raptures in the, in the Bible. Enoch walked with God and then was no more. Elijah the prophet was caught up into heaven. He did not die. By the way, we're going to mention them again when we get to Revelation chapter 11. But they did not die. They were caught up to heaven. Philip was walking along uh, and God transported him away. God told Philip, hey, I want you to go down to this road and meet this guy. And there's this guy there. And that was who God wanted him to preach the gospel to. And then when he was done, it was like, boom, he disappeared. And Philip found himself miles away, miraculously. And we should question these things. I believe that the rapture calls us to reaffirm one of the foundational points of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura. There were five solas, sola fide, faith alone, sola Christus, in Christ alone, sola scriptura, scripture alone. Oh, I'm going to blank on them now, aren't I? Ah, I'm learning Latin. I don't speak Latin. Sola fide, sola Christus, sola scriptura, Sola gloria Dio, which is glory to God alone. And I'm, you can look up, search the five solas, you'll find it. 
Ah, my point is this. When the reformers did that, they wrote it in a language that the, the priests and the scribes and the scholars of the Catholic Church would understand. They wrote it in Latin in their language. Hey, we are affirming these things. And one of them was Scripture alone. If we say, you know what, I don't believe in, in the rapture because it wasn't in the history or the tradition that I grew up in. I say, I reject that, not because I reject you or where you came from. I reject it because Scripture alone. Now, certainly, we're not foolish. History and tradition and all of that informs how we read the Scripture. I'm not foolish to that. I'm not ignorant of those things. But where my history or my tradition bump against the Scripture, it's my history or tradition that must change. If my history or tradition allowed certain sin, that must change. If my history or tradition lacked care and compassion and love, then that must change. If my history or tradition ignores the word of God, then that must change. Finally, the rapture calls us to look and to realize the temporary nature of this world. You know what? I, I love it here. I love living in Oregon. I am so happy that I live on the West Coast. I've, I've lived in Seattle, I've lived in the Bay Area, and now I've lived here uh, for a number of years in Oregon, and I am so happy here, and I do not want to leave ever. I am thankful that I don't live in the Midwest. There's a reason my dad, who's from Pennsylvania, he doesn't go home certain times of the year, because it's miserable there. You try going to the East Coast in the summer, my, oh, there's a reason my dad only goes home certain times of year. I'm thankful to live here. But you know what? It's passing away. This world of, of insanity and madness and pain and hurt and sin, it will not endure forever. Jesus will return. Jesus will set things right. By the way, that's the main point of the book of the Revelation when it comes to that. The book of the Revelation is not about the rapture. You kind of have to know that it's in the Bible to understand some things in the book of the Revelation. But the main point of the book of the Revelation is about Jesus setting things right. And when we are aware that at any moment Jesus could return, at any moment Jesus could call his church home, at any moment Jesus could catch us up, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those of us who are alive, if that's us, we will be caught up. And we will be there with Jesus. And we'll read about what happens next, next week when we get into chapter 4. I do want to end with this. Chapter 5, verse 1 in 1 Thessalonians says, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. One of the reasons I believe that the rapture of the church will happen before the tribulation is if the tribulation starts, you'll kind of have an idea of when things are going to change. Uh, Paul says this is going to be a surprise. But he says about dates and times, we don't need to write you. It's going to be a surprise. I grew up in a time where things like there was a book that was popular, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come Back in 1988. He didn't. You know, there, when uh, was it about 10 years ago, there was a fellow named Harold Camping, and he had a large radio ministry, and people all over the country listened to his radio broadcasts. That's a thing that we had before podcasts, if you don't know what radio is. But people would listen to his radio podcasts. And Harold Camping would say that the world is, Jesus is going to come back, the rapture is going to happen on this date. 
And there were people who believed him. There were people that stopped paying their mortgages, people who, who quit their jobs, people who cashed in their life savings because they were convinced that Jesus was going to come back in six months and they needed to be ready. And then that time passed. No one knows the day or the hour. Jesus, you might remember this when we studied in Matthew, Jesus teaching on the end times, he says, only the Father in heaven knows. There's been so much bad teaching about the rapture. There have been people who have tried to get in these sort of conspiratorial, sensationalist uh, things. I just believe what the Bible says. I believe that before the time of tribulation, Jesus will remove his church. I, I believe that there will be a rapture. I believe that. And, and that's something I will fight. Somebody says, there's no rapture in the Bible right here. I affirm that it will happen before the tribulation because it makes the most sense to me as I read the Bible. But if you disagree, that's fine. And by the way, if you disagree with me, I think you'll be comfortable going through Revelation with us. I reject the idea that God still has wrath for his church or that the cross was incomplete in taking our judgment. But I'm not going to set dates. I'm not going to try to be uh, fantastical or sensationalist. I know that at some point Jesus will come back. And in the meantime, I'm going to be as best I can busy about the Father's business to tell people about Jesus, to tell people the good news that we are freed from sin and death. That is why Jesus has left us here, to be his witness and to make disciples. So the rapture will happen. It'll come. I think it's important to understand. So as we go through the book of the Revelation, you're like, hey, where's the church? We're not there as far as I understand. It's important so that we can comfort each other with these words, just as he says in chapter 5, verse 11, and in chapter 4, verse 18, that we can be encouraged. But you know what? Our real point as we go forward is to know that Jesus is coming back. He's coming back quickly at any time, any day. And in the meantime, we have a mission to be busy with. If you have any questions, comments, if you just want to point out that I couldn't remember that fifth sola, whatever it is, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, we gather together in small groups throughout the week. You can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com for more information. And we have our podcast that you can subscribe to and, and be part of what's going on here. God bless you. We'll see you next week at 1030 a.m.